Hey, you know how computers are designed to make running a business a lot easier? I think that counts for mailing and shipping, too. I don't know why you wouldn't use Stamps.com. You could have 24-hour access to the post office right from your computer. No waiting in line. No hassle. Stamps.com makes mailing and shipping easier. Just use the computer and printer you already have to get official U.S. postage for any letter, any package. Print it. Put it on envelopes. Put it on labels. Put it on plain paper. Hand it to your mail carrier. They'll take it. You're good. It's more powerful than a postage meter. You can avoid those time-consuming trips to the post office. And I personally use Stamps.com. And actually, you could too if you use the promo code BS for this special no-risk trial. It is a $110 bonus offer. It includes a digital scale, up to $55 of free postage. Um, All you have to do is go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in BS. Stamps.com. Check it out. The BS Report is a free-flowing conversation that occasionally touches on mature subjects. The BS Report. The BS Report with Bill Simmons. Welcome to the BS Report. It's a sunny Tuesday here in Southern California. If you missed the Bill Don't Lie pod that we launched, NBA Talk only, uh, subscribe to it on iTunes. We're doing another basketball podcast today just for you BS Report fans. Hopefully you're subscribing to both. Uh, Brian Windhorst, who has not been on in a while from ESPN.com, he has become more and more and more and more connected over these last few years. I'm proud of his progress as a reporter and a writer. How are you? Good, Bill. Um, I, I would say you have a better feel for LeBron and the Cavs than just about anybody. I think they were 19 and 20 after 39 games. Was there any any point in the season where you felt like LeBron had bitten off a little more than he could chew and or that this was going to be a potential disaster for him? It wasn't just me who felt that way. LeBron felt that way. Yeah. Um, he um, Early in the season in December, I was with the team a lot early on. I was, I was there the night that they lost to go to 19-20. and 20. And I had a few conversations with him, and he just said, this is a really big job. And there was even a few, thing, a few things he said publicly. There was, at one point, I think he said, this is going to be the hardest thing I ever do in my career. And I, I think he felt like, all right, this is going to be a multi-year struggle. And he didn't have a whole lot of faith in the coach and just yeah. me saying that. As soon as people in Cleveland hear that in the Cavs organization, I'm going to start to get negative commentary because they don't believe that. But he, he didn't really believe in, in David Blatt early on. And Well, wait a second. Interrupt you quickly. Like It was pretty obvious from if you watch the games on TV and or from the people who were sitting behind the Cavs bench. <laughs> like There just wasn't a lot of interaction between them. Right. If you sat or spent any time near the Cavs bench, um, and they don't let us sit there anymore, um, yeah. but I do know people that do sit there, <laughs> and professionals and non-professionals, and I was getting a steady stream of commentary. And when you hear something four, five, six, seven, eight times, and when you talk to players on the other team and they tell you about what the players, the Cavs players are saying during the games. and um, Also, at the beginning of the season, LeBron could not believe how much of a ball hog Kyrie Irving and Deion Waiters were. Yeah. Um, There was a first road trip. They were were out west, and Kyrie played something like 70 consecutive minutes without an assist. And LeBron could not believe it. Um, The first night... He got so frustrated. It was a game in Portland that he just basically stood over in the corner. And um, he was sort of like, uh, you know, Crash Davis in, um, you know, when, uh, when, when 
Ebby Nuke Lelouch won't take the sign. He just says, okay, serve it up. Go ahead, serve it up. It was like LeBron was standing in the corner going, okay, do your stuff. Do your stuff over there. I and watched that game. I watched that game. That felt like a borderline crisis moment. Yeah, and I, like, I talked to him after that game in the locker room, you know, just privately. And he just was like, this is going to be a, a rough one. And then the next night, Kyrie, they thought, you know, all right, Kyrie, you're still learning the lesson. The next night, Kyrie did it again. And so LeBron basically had to, had to uh, step to him. And look, I don't want to make it sound like they dropped gloves and LeBron put up against the locker, but LeBron basically said to him, hey, you can't play this way. <laughs> Maybe this is the way right. you've played the last few years. You can't play this way. And, um, and t- to my surprise, Kyrie listened. But well, actually, what happened first, Bill, was LeBron just took the ball. LeBron's like, okay, you know, now I'm going to play. Since, since I can't trust you playing point guard, now I'm going to play point guard. And by the way, none of this was done behind the scenes. It was very obvious. <laughs> LeBron, in right. interviews, said, I know what I have to do. <laughs> and what he had to do was he just had to take the ball and show them. And the result was the Cavs didn't play very well. He turned the ball over like crazy because he was basically yep. playing. Um, the, the Princeton offense that David Blatt installed in the preseason, they just threw that out. Um, right. What typically happens, and this has been happening for like three months now, what typically happens is, LeBron will take the ball, and LeBron will call the play. David Blatt will see what play LeBron calls, and then he'll repeat it to the team. That <laughs> happens on a regular basis. Now, a lot of times they'll come out of a timeout, and there'll be a play drawn up in there. And sometimes that's David Blatt. Sometimes that's Ty Lue. Sometimes it's LeBron. And they, they get real organized out of a timeout, and you give the head coach credit for that. But, you know, that's pretty much LeBron basically said, we're going to play this offense, which is very basic, and I'm going to be the point guard. And, and he said that he said that in interviews a couple of times. He would yeah, just say is, like, "Yeah, I, I decided to move to point guard." <laughs> like, like the coach wasn't involved. Yeah. Then they asked, "Well, was that David Blatt who came to you?" He goes, "No, no, I did it on my own." Right. Uh, I, I mean, I know that this is. I mean, when I was writing about it and talking about it, it was deemed controversial. Controversial. And David Blatt was very upset about it, and he snaps back <laughs> regularly. Um, but it, none of this was in was in the closet. It was all in the open. Right, but and, what's weird about situations like this, and especially like somebody like you who has a high profile covering that team, or or somebody like a, a quote unquote mainstream writer, uh, on air person like me, when we have opinions on things that we're seeing, I, I think sometimes fan bases get really upset at those opinions, and I think there's a difference between you reporting, "Hey, these three sources told me blank," versus you saying. I was at this game and here's what I saw. And I think, I think whatever the internet has kind of blurred those lines a little bit to some degree. But when I was watching the Cavs on league pass and stuff, you know, I love the body language stuff. It was, that was an unhappy team for a while. And it feels like it completely shifted starting with the Mozgov trade and really LeBron taking over a point guard. When do you think it shifted? Yeah. Well, in fairness, David Blatt, um, it turned out that he didn't have the depth that, that he thought he did. And so he ended right. up relying on Joe Harris and Matthew Delavadova playing on the wing. And there was a game against San Antonio in uh, mid-December. And um, he played Joe Harris, a rookie out of Virginia, who is he's a good corner three-point shooter. I think he has a career as a corner three-point shooter. He has a long way to come on defense. But he played... Joe Harris, the last 17 minutes of that game. I remember that one, yeah. And he ran out of timeouts with like four or five minutes to go. And it was a close game. 
And, you know, Pop, of course, had three timeouts in his hand when he got to one minute. And after the game, Greg Popovich was extraordinarily complimentary of David Blatt, as he has been several times since. But there's no way he could look down the bench and see him run out of timeouts and literally playing a rookie 17 consecutive minutes in the second half against the defending champs. There's no way he could look down there and say everything was hunky-dory. Um, yeah, and I, I think we also underestimated just what a tough situation that was for Blatt because they, they had the wrong types of player in the team, right? They had two ball-dominant guys in Kyrie and Dion. They had multiple power forwards. You know, LeBron is basically a power forward now, but he can play all the no, positions. And they had no center. No center at all because Vergeau got hurt right away, which I thought was by far the dumbest thing this team has done all year was the Vergeau extension without even seeing if he could play for two straight months. Um, but it was just – there were a lot of redundancies on the team that I think the trades – listen, I've said this uh, multiple times. I didn't think Mozgov would have this kind of impact on them. I, I just – I don't understand in Denver why he didn't have this kind of impact on them. Obviously, they saw stuff. They looked at advanced stats, things like that. But the combination of that, getting JR, who who has kind of rejuvenated himself getting out of New York City, but also just getting waiters off the team, I think we all underestimated just what that would mean too, right? Yes, because what JR does is what the Cavs needed, which is a guy who will be very happy to take shots when they come to him as three-pointers, which Dion. You know, Dion. As soon as the ball leaves his hand, you can tell that it's not a good-looking shot. Yeah. Um, he has a terrible form. Like, like watching James Jones and him practice side by side, it was like, oh my god. <laughs> you know, it's like the, one of the best forms in the league. And then Dion, the ball comes out of his hands and goes straight up in the air. He just—he's not an outside shooter. And of course, he wanted the ball too. So they get Jr. And not only that, but Jr. is playing for a contract. He has an opt-out, which I'm pretty sure he's going to take. Yeah. And so he's—he's he's really working at the defensive end. Um, so he's been a terrific addition. Um, so they get Shumpert and J.R. Smith. That gives them two real wings. That means no more, basically no more Sean Marion and no more uh, Joe Harris. And then they can make uh, Della Vadova like their eighth or ninth man, which is more suited to him. Yeah. And then, you know, so they did that trade first. And um, at the end of the day, they're sitting there holding Shumpert, J.R. Smith, and a first-round pick. And I went, my God, how did they – like, I thought that – when I was doing the reporting on the trade, I knew this Oklahoma City first-round pick was involved, and I said, well, that has to go to New York. New York gets nothing out of this if they don't get that pick. And as I'm putting the trade together, I, you know, I'm like, no, no, that pick's going to Cleveland. And I go, what? How, how is New York not getting anything for these two guys? Well, um, it's, the Knicks are idiots is how that happens. They, they gave away Tyson Chandler, and they gave away they, – they could have just stretched J.R. Smith out. They didn't have to – trade Shumpert to get rid of J.R. Smith. Just stretch him out over four years. Buy him out. Well, if the that Cavs that are, no sense. If the Cavs are getting Smith and Shumpert and the, and the, uh, and the Thunder are getting uh, waiters, the only asset of any value left in the trade is the Oklahoma City first-round pick. So, so that has to go to New York, right? No, it ends right. up in Cleveland. <laughs> Great trade. So I can't believe that that trade worked out. Then two days later, they do the Mozgov deal, and I can't believe they gave up two first-round picks for him. Um, now, yep. when, you, when you talk to the Cavs about this, they will say to you, we looked at this as one big transaction. And certainly if you do look at it that way, it's fine. But I thought they hit, a, jet, they hit a, uh, a home run, a grand slam on the first deal. And the second deal, I was not – I'm talking about this is like January 10th when they made it or whatever. I'm thinking, I don't know about this deal. Two first-round picks for Timofey Mozgov, he's a middling center. I thought um, it was idiotic. 
Right. Uh, I mean, Tim Connolly, I mean, normally when you just give a player away, Tim Connolly, like, sprinted out and, and, and had, uh, had a press conference because he was so proud of it. Yeah. Um, and there's not much been uh, – it's like the only happy press conference they've had in Denver all year. We got two first-rounders. And then he was a fantastic fit. Um, LeBron loves playing with him so much. He's never played with a guy like this. The only real center LeBron's ever played with is um, Zdrunas Ogauskas, who was a finesse center, who was a pick-and-pop player. Um, and he was a he was a rim defender in terms of he was seven foot three, but he was not a guy who protected the front of the rim. He did play with Shaq for one year in fairness, but it was at the end for Shaq. And Shaq broke yes. his thumb and didn't play like the last two and a half months. He was He's never played he with was, a guy like this. He was Undertaker in WrestleMania thirty one Shaq. Just <laughs> kind of just stumbling around. <laughs> and and Shaq that was he did play one more year with your Celtics. Um, yeah, and he looked good for about a month and then he got hurt. But it was pretty much the end for Shaq. And I got to say, I was covering the team on a daily basis at that time. Shaq couldn't have been better to me. Yeah. He was, he was terrific. Uh, I, I loved covering him for that year. And after he, after he tore his thumb up, he was gone for two months, and he actually lost like 25 pounds. I mean, he really tried to come back for the playoffs. And that was the year where it all fell apart, you know. Right. And, but, it, you know, it, it wasn't really Shaq's fault. I mean, he... He really tried. He really tried to come back to give it a playoff push and couldn't. But well, so those trades were great. I mean, retroactively, you just look back and and uh, it was transformative for their season, and they, they were kind of off and running from there. But you mentioned earlier how LeBron took over the point guard spot, the duties, and just has the ball in his hands all the time. And in a weird way, and we didn't realize this in the moment, but now I think we realize it. Um, that's the best thing that ever could have happened to Kyrie Irving's career. Because he is somebody who actually should be used the way they're using him. You know, it's they're using him a little bit like how Miami eventually figured out how to use Wade in the last couple of years, where he's off the ball, you don't rely on him all the time, you ride him when he's super hot. At any given point, he can try to take somebody one on one, and that's really kind of what he is. I, I think he's. Uh, I was. I said in the trade value column, like. His destiny is to be used as a Tony Parker type guard, not like a Chris Paul, Isaiah Thomas type guard. He's a guy that's gonna, you know, be in the twenties for points, and he's gonna have four or five assists. Like that's kind of his destiny, right? And the difference between him and Wade and Parker and you know Chris Paul is that he's a lights out deep shooter. Yeah. So that from a space standpoint, he works better with LeBron and. Um, I was so disappointed in the way Kyrie played and was a leader last year. I felt like he had a major regression, and I I couldn't be more impressed with what he's done this year. So he Me totally. Too. I was not. I was not a fan of his uh, his game. I just thought he seemed like the kind of guy who was always going to be on losing teams, and that changed. Yeah, he he made a and and if no matter what happens to this Cavs season, um, although I really do think about six weeks ago, LeBron came to a, a place in his head where he feels like they can win it now. Yeah. But no matter what happens with this Cavs season, the green light, the victory, is that it looks like Kyrie and LeBron are going to be a great marriage for the foreseeable future. And they've got Kyrie signed up to a five-year, $80 million deal that kicks in next year. And with where the cap is going, that's going to be one of the, you know, he's got to stay healthy as the, as the uh, qualifier. It'll and be LeBron, one of the best contracts in the league. Yeah, and LeBron, I think only in 2000. 11 that first Miami season the only other time he had this 
was just a world-class scorer who could just take over an entire game by himself and LeBron could just kind of sit it out and let the guy do it. He's ne- most, I mean, Wade that one year and that was it for that. The most excited guy in the building the two times Kyrie scored 50 points was LeBron. Right. Because he's never experienced that before. Where And, he, and he's an awesome teammate. I, th- I think at the very least he has a track record of – I think a lot like Steph Curry, like when you watch Steph Curry, how he reacted with Clay Thompson and some other guys out there. Somebody who's genuinely happy when his teammates do well because he's smart enough to understand what that means for him. Yeah, he's definitely taken on that role, and um, they, they still have a lot of things to iron out. Like, like they played a game on Sunday against Philadelphia where they didn't score in the last four minutes. Yeah. They did win it, but it was only because they were playing Philly, and um, it was basically my turn, your turn with Kyrie and LeBron playing ISO basketball very similar to what happened with he and, and Wade in 2011. And that, to me, is worrisome because they haven't developed, like, this is this is our pet play or these are our three pet sets that we can go to under pressure. It's still more of it's going to be straight me on you. And, and they're by the way, they're two of the best isolation players in the league, but it's not ideal. Um, and I think that could end up being an Achilles heel as they go into the playoffs. But, well, the, but that's a crucial point, though, because that's my biggest fear with this Cleveland team. And it's not just the my turn, your turn stuff, which is just deadly in the playoffs, but um, they're so ISO heavy. I think it gets tough. I think in the playoffs, especially when you've played the same team, you're going to play the same team five, six, seven times. You saw it happen with Golden State in that Clippers series. Um, It's just really tough to go one-on-one all the time when you don't have that. You're not getting easy plays and backdoor cuts and all that stuff. And I do think that's a real concern. They might have two of the best six one-on-one guys in the league, but the other team is still going to know that's coming in the playoffs. And um, don't you feel like that is the, other than the the fact that they can't figure out the Kevin Love part of this, um, I feel like that one-on-one stuff is the biggest danger spot for them. Yes. When we get into the playoffs, we're the, the inevitable Scott Brooks, David Black comparisons are going to come up because no question they're, they're going to drop those types of plays. And really those two are entwined because this is why you have Kevin Love. Um, is to use him in these situations. To me, this is this is pretty simple. You you put Kevin Love on the elbow and you throw the ball to him there, where he's a triple threat, and then you run action with LeBron and Kyrie and make the defense defend three players at once. Um, to me, that you know, just getting the ball to the middle of the floor, or even being put even putting LeBron on on the nail like that. Um, but they they never run anything like that. I haven't seen it happen one time in in like a pressure situation um it's incredible because i remember goldsbury was doing the shot charts for us for kevin love and i think we even raised this as a red flag somewhere i can't remember where we talked about maybe it was in a podcast not with you with uh i think either me and goldsbury or me and zach or somebody but um where kevin love thrived the most last year was the exact same spot on the floor where lebron thrived the most last year that left elbow and you could have looked at it one of two ways either this is a terrible sign for Kevin Love because that's he's in LeBron's spot, so he's you know you got to move. See you later. Or wow, they could they this could be the most devastating pick and roll of all time. And what's happened is they just kind of pushed him out and turned him into Channing Fry. I don't understand it. I, I I just yeah I've heard you on the radio talking about this. I heard you I think on Levitard show recently. You were saying you think Kevin Love's hurt. You think yeah. his back is not a hundred percent. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think so. Um, 
I just think there's a couple of statistical things that point directly to it. When you look at his numbers when he has zero or one day off, or you look at when he has two days off, when he has two days off, and I agree that sample size is relatively small, but it's what we have to work with. When he has two days off, he averages 58% shooting, 22 points, 11 rebounds. He's an all-star. Wow. When he's, playing, he's playing on a back-to-back, he shoots 38% and averages 15 points. When he's playing on one day off, which is the majority of the time, um, he shoots about 42%, um, and he averages about 16 points. And Well, that's um, the playoffs. You're playing basically every other day starting those last two rounds. Right. And I also think that he disappears in fourth quarters, and I think that some of it is because his back stiffens up. Um, and uh, he he's talked vaguely about it, and look, he's going to be a free agent, so he doesn't need to be out there blabbing that I've got a bad back, and I also think that he doesn't want to make an excuse. Um, but he's had to leave, I think, three games this year with back spasms or back problems. He's missed two or three games with back issues. Um, I, I, you know, I do think there's some chemistry issues, but I think the guy's got a bad back. And uh, I don't think it's like he needs to have surgery or whatever. He probably just needs to not play on it for three months. So what do we um, think he has, like a herniated disc that they're not I, telling us about? What do you I, think? I don't know. I just know that, like, I, I remember Mike Miller going through a season with the heat with the bad back, and he would never talk about it. Yeah. And he, he, you couldn't always tell because you can't tell with a bad back all the time. It's like you can see the guy limping. Well, Pippen but, had one in the last MJ Bull season. Pippen's back basically crippled him in the playoffs, which was one of the reasons. That was such an amazing Jordan performance because – you know, you, when somebody has a bad back, you know. I, for him, it seems like, for love, from what I've seen, it seems like it comes and goes. And part of me wonders if it's, you know, I, I mean, I had a really bad back in the early 2000s. And uh, I read a ton of stuff on it because I was deciding whether I needed to have surgery or not. And what's interesting is stress is a huge, huge factor for a bad back. And... It's weird to think that part of it could be stress-related for Kevin Love. This is total conjecture, but he's in a really stressful situation, right? He's playing. He went from Minnesota to Cleveland. He's being used out of position. He's playing with the most famous player on the earth. He's in a situation where once upon a time in Minnesota, nobody gave a crap what he did day to day. I mean, he was in a, 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 just anonymous, and now he's playing for this team that has a giant spotlight on it, and I wonder if all this stuff is related, you know? When uh, when he gives a radio interview or LeBron subtweets him, it's on Sports Center. That's got to be a new a new feeling for well, him. Well, can we agree? I I hate blowing stuff like this out of proportion, but man, when he gave that interview to Dan Patrick and pushed Westbrook for the MVP, I thought that was one of the strangest moments of the season. Like, if somebody <laughs> said to me, you know, who do you think the best TV person is, Jalen or Barkley? I wouldn't I, I wouldn't say like, well, you know, obviously Barkley's amazing. He's the MVP. Like, you, you, you're going to gravitate toward your own guys. You just have to do it to do it. And it was weird that he, he, you know, he's friends with Westbrook, first of all. It was also weird he talked about how LeBron took time off. Like, he wasn't <laughs> saying, like, well, LeBron was hurt, his knee was bothering. Right. He was like, well, LeBron took two weeks off. It's like, wow, that was, <laughs> that was kind of bold, right? That, that, that just, I thought the whole thing felt funny to me. Well, like, on one hand, I hate, when, I hate how phony interviews are. So yeah. whenever a guy's being real, I'm like, I don't want to stifle that. Um, but also, um, somebody was talking to me about this, and they were like, well, 
if anybody on the Rockets was asked, do you think they'd answer anything other than Harden? Or if anybody on the when the Warriors was asked? And I guess I was a pretty simple answer. I said, no, I don't think so. And um, LeBron, uh, I know, like, he elected to not make an issue of it. He made sure he, he made a conscious decision before he was asked, I'm going to shut this down. But one thing I think you're going to see is LeBron, because this is what they did in Miami. Um, LeBron's going to have a conversation with the whole team between yeah. now and the start of the playoffs. And he's going to say, listen, uh, no more no more anything to the media. You, you give planned answers. You're going to see, if they listen to him, you're going to see the answers go clam up. Uh, if there's going to be drama, it's going to at least be all on-court drama because LeBron has rolled his eyes numerous times, and not just Kevin, but also some of the stuff that David Blatt has said. I mean, I've lost track of how many different times this year David Blatt has said something and LeBron has directly contradicted it within 45 uh, seconds. <laughs> right. um, you know, and I think he might even have to have the talk with his coach. Hey, just give bland answers here. We got to get in these playoffs. I had uh, a couple of friends went to the San Antonio Cleveland game, the famous Kyrie game, which was, I think probably the best game of the year. And they sat near that Cavs bench. And um, now this is well past all the soap opera stuff with the Cavs. Like they're, they're playing really well at this point. And that game felt like a potential finals game. I think that was the first game of the year that you could kind of smell the playoffs in the game. And they said even at that game, the LeBron Blatt dynamic was bizarre. And they were saying all of the stuff LeBron was doing like toward the bench was directed at Ty Lue. And it was like Blatt was kind of there and it was like he was just bypassing Blatt and just dealing with Ty Lue directly. And they were like, it was just weird. Like they had good seats. They were just watching it. They had no dog in the race. They're not Cavs fans. They're not Cav uh, anti-fans. They're just watching it going, boy, this is weird. Like the way they, they act is like Ty Lue is the coach, but they know David Blatt's the coach. Do you sense that when you're at these games even now? For months. Yeah. And um, so I do a lot of talking to advanced scouts, and one of the things advanced scouts do is they watch the bench like hawks. Yep. Because they have to get the play calls and everything like that. They, they drag out these little, um, you know, noculars, you know, where they stare from their seats. You know, they're, they're constantly looking at, at uh, play calls and stuff like that. And, like, I'd be talking to them, and I'd talk to them on a regular basis, say, hey, what about this, what about this team? And, you know, like, one, like, like, for example, within the last week I was talking to a scout, and he was like, Eric Spolstra has changed his offense more this year to accommodate this team in Miami than, than any time that he or Pat Riley have been there. I was talking to a yeah. scout who had been around for 20 years. So that's the kind of things we talk about, okay? He's like, they've changed their play calls for the first time in 15 years, you know? And I, I was talking to these guys, and they're like, what is going on on that Cavs bench, man? Like, like, these people who see a game every single day, they yeah. track every coach in the league. And, and again, they see hundreds of games a year. Uh, very rarely do they see anything that makes them even look up from their their paperwork, and they're like, "Man, I've never seen anything like what's going on in that Cavs bench." And right. um, and so I felt it was my duty to talk about it a little bit, and it really, really pissed David Blatt off. Um, well, look, he really got unfortunately angry for him, it. unfortunately for him, the games are televised and have fans in the stands. Like you can't <laughs> you can't hide stuff when it's that blatant. I mean, I noticed it just from watching League Pass. Um, I think uh, usually I love watching the huddles. I mean, it's it's I always have when I when I had the uh, the Clippers season tickets. I've always tried to be on the side where the benches are, 
close enough near one of the benches because I just love watching the interactions. And benches can go one of two ways. Either everyone's locked in or uh, it's a team that's headed nowhere and they're locked out. And, you know, their coaches in the timeout, guys are watching the Jumbotron. They're looking at the cheerleaders. They're interacting with, you know, it's one of those two ways. This third way is pretty rare where people are locked in, but at the same time, they seem like locked in on different parts of the huddle. And I, I, don't, I don't know when, when we get to the playoffs with, the, with a much bigger magnifying glass and more cameras and more people watching. I think this is going to be fascinating. Yeah, I just I don't know where LeBron's where LeBron is at. Uh, I, you know, he has he's gotten himself to a place where he knows that these are my responsibilities. This is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to try to get this team to a certain level. And David Blatt only figures into part of that. Um, he's he's taken on certain responsibilities that he's going to have to do, but he is so excited about the talent on this team. Yeah, he loves, like I said, he loves playing with Mozgov. He loves J.R. Smith. He was the guy who pushed for that trade. You know, the Cavs were trying to get Shumpert. That's what the conversations were. And of course, the Knicks were saying, "We'll give you Shumpert, but you got to take J.R." And you know, the the Cavs were like, "I don't know about that," but you know, he would help us. And so they went to LeBron, but LeBron was like, "No, you get J.R. And if you can get Shumpert with him, that's great." And so he, I think, really loves their top seven. He thinks their top seven is right there, and he's excited about that. And he knows that David Blatt can do certain things. Actually, recently, the Cavs have come out of timeouts with some really good plays, and they've run some nice stuff. Their isolation at the end of the game has been awful. But I've seen David Blatt really drop some nice stuff. He, he does, uh, and even at the beginning of the season, um, the, the Princeton offense that they ran in the preseason I thought was pretty good. They ran some really nice stuff. They just quit running that in November. But I do believe he can do some things. He's coached a lot. I just think that LeBron has sectioned off certain areas and said, i got to take care of these. And whether or not that hurts them, we'll have to see. Have we ever figured out what happened when LeBron took that two-week hiatus? <sighs> well, he went to Miami and something happened. He, he just rested. So he had a, I guess. Uh, the story you know, is he had an achy knee and he needed some time off and he needed his body to recover and then he was back and he looked like LeBron again. I also feel like he was energized. Um, David Griffin tells the story. Um, they were in San Francisco uh, and they had just traded for Mozgov. And he said that LeBron had been moping for weeks. And there was a game, Bill, at the end of the, uh, the, of the year, at the end of 2014 in Atlanta, it was like December 30th or December 29th or something like that. It was, you know what? It was LeBron's birthday. It was December 30th. Playing Atlanta. It was before Atlanta went on their 20-game win streak. So they weren't, it wasn't really deemed a big game yet. And they thought LeBron was going to play. And LeBron just decided, I'm not going to play. And mm. like at the last minute, he told him, I'm not playing. And um, didn't even come out to the bench. Just sat in the back. Didn't come out. And the people were stunned. The people on the Cavs were stunned. And he had sort of just like waved a bit of a white flag there. Um, he just didn't feel like playing. He had never done that ever before. Wow. He'd always played through it. And so it was after that game where they said, all right, you know what, take your two weeks off. Because they were, you know, he had reached a very low point. And so he had been moping for several weeks. And, and when they made the trades, LeBron, it was during LeBron's hiatus. So he went on their West Coast trip with them. He wasn't playing yet. They were playing in, at Golden State. And they were in San Francisco in the team hotel. And in walks Timothy Mozgov. First time he's arrived, he's just flown in. And he's arrived. And David Griffin tells the story that LeBron was sort of leaning against the wall, 
like sort of still moping. And he saw Mozdov, and he just was like, I can't believe how big he is. I mean, obviously, he played against them a dozen times. Yeah. But he's like, I just can't believe how big he is. And he, like, straightened up. And Griff tells the story about how LeBron just, like, straightened up to meet him. And he goes, he was straightened up the rest of the time. You know, he came back, like, four or five days later against Phoenix and looked great, even though they lost. And then it just the invigoration of him getting the time off with the new talent completely turned it around. And since that, that loss to Phoenix, where they went 19-20, and 20, yeah. they went 14-1 and one against the West. Um, they won 16 in a row at home. They've Which pretty is what much we, been the that, best that's team what we, we thought that was the team they were going to be, unbeatable at home. That's right. Um, I watched that Phoenix game, and I genuinely thought that we were headed for a full-fledged disaster as I watched that game. Like they seemed, and I even tweeted a couple times, they seemed truly dysfunctional in that game to a point of I didn't know if it had passed the point of no return. And it's interesting that that was a tipping point the other way. Well, after that game, so that was a, Love didn't play the fourth quarter that night. They lost. Yeah. It was a close game, but they lost. And you've been to Phoenix, Bill. The, the, the visiting locker room in Phoenix is right next to the practice gym. And um, the, the visiting locker room there was small, like in most arenas. And as soon as the game ended, Kevin Love, while still in his uniform, came bolting out of the Cavs locker room and pigeonholed David Griffin, the general manager, and they walked in to the practice court there right next door to have a discussion. I don't know to this day what that discussion was, but I do know that bouncing down the hall came Miles Plumley, who had not played in the game that night. He had a basketball under his arm. Young player, he doesn't play. He's going to go get shots up. I see this on a regular basis. He walks into the practice gym to go shoot, runs into whatever conversation Kevin Love and David Griffin were having, immediately spins around and walks out and, and says, I'm not going in there right now. Wow. So whatever he encountered, there must have been something going on there. So that was going on. That was also the same time where I had advanced scouts telling me that Tyron Lue was um, initiating timeouts, calling timeouts. Because I don't think, what I really think it was, is, you know, the, the timeout structure in the NBA is a little bit different. There's certain ones that you get that are mandated and certain ones that are not mandated. And I think David Blatt was having a difficult time in the scheme of things, figuring out whether it was their timeout or when to take a 20. Yeah. And Tyron Lue was instructing him. But there were times when Tyron Lue was just flat out calling timeouts. And I wrote about it that night because it had happened that night, and David Blatt hit the roof about that, just absolutely basically called me a liar when numerous people had told me, and I'd seen it with my own two eyes, but that had happened that night. And it did look like a a bad bad spot. Um, Luckily for them, they were playing – you know the Lakers. They had they played the Lakers and Clippers the next two days in Los Angeles. They had a little four day stay in L.A. and that turned their season around. The love part of this, um, you know, he knows what's out there for him. I, he was one of the best ten to twelve guys in the league last year, hands down. He was averaging twenty six and thirteen, commanding double teams, um, had just monster games where he was the best player on the floor against good teams, and. He's been marginalized. He's still putting up 16 and 9. It's fine. We talked about how he's hurt a little bit. I don't know, like, if they win the title, I almost think that makes it easier for him to leave because then he can say, you got a ring. Now I'm going to get paid and be the guy. If they don't win the title, I also think that makes it easier for him to leave. I don't see any scenario where he stays. Do you? Okay. Let me just bring this up with you because I don't – I disagree with your premise 
that ever that it, it, if, if a guy wins a title, it makes it okay for him to leave. I just don't agree with that. I, I felt the same way, except Darrell Rivas just did it to the Patriots. I know, but it's not... I know what you're saying, but that's a different situation. The money wasn't the same, and, and they made him a free agent. They didn't pick up his option. It's one thing if the team says we're moving on from you. you know, and, and also, Darrell Rivas, as good as he is, isn't Tom Brady, and he isn't... You know, I don't know. Well, I, I think he's I think he's the equivalent of Kevin Love. I think he's one of the best twelve players in football. And if so, and if and if the Cavs said we're not picking up your option because that's too expensive, then I wouldn't understand why he'd leave. But I just disagree with that premise. I mean, you talk about it all the time, and I just personally disagree with that. I just don't believe that. I mean, certainly guys have retired, guys have not resigned, but star players are going to want to defend. But I do think. Wait a second. Do I have my info wrong? So the Cavs are in control of this? No, no, no. I was referring to Revis. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. Okay. They didn't pick up his option. They right. could have kept him, right? Well, so but it, it would have been $22 million. It would, it would have been yeah. insane. But that's fine. But they still said, we're not picking it up. It was the Patriots. The ball was in the Patriots' court first. They tried to. They offered him, I think, $40 million guaranteed for three years, and he got more than that from the Jets. Yeah, that's and fine. But, I mean, they were the ones who elected to make him a free agent. I understand they had yeah. to, but okay. But just wanted to, you know, apples and oranges. But here's the thing. Before Kevin Love was traded to the Cavs, there was a meeting. This is, this is not something that happens normally, but because of the situation, they did this. It was right. his agent, Jeff Schwartz, Kevin Love, David Griffin, Dan Gilbert. I believe the meeting took place in Las Vegas, but I'm not 100% certain. And in that meeting, they had to come to some sort of agreement. Now, any sort of agreement that it's involved a future legal. contract would it be illegal. It is illegal. Right. So as, so as of that, um, Love could walk away and the Cavs couldn't do anything because um, it's illegal anyway. And maybe they didn't make that promise. But here's what I know. Before well, the wink, meeting... You could go wink, wink. Yes, but... His agent is a very respected agent, very powerful agent, and I think he would be very careful about committing to Kevin to anything. But here's what I know. They were not offering Andrew Wiggins, okay? They have the meeting. The meeting concludes. Andrew Wiggins is in the trade, and the trade was essentially done. The trade was done for a month before it actually happened. Yeah. And um, Mark Stein and I like had to get creative in different ways we could say it was done without being done because... You know, you remember the summer before the, the the league quashed the Kevin Garnett to Clippers thing because it was deemed as like a side deal with Doc and yep. and and the league had warned the hell out of both sides because they were embarrassed that their number one pick was going to be traded in mid August. So everybody was told to adhere to the letter of the law, but everybody just minded their p's and q's for a month. But basically, the deal was done after that meeting. So what was said in that meeting? What did Kevin say he would do? What did the Cavs say they were going to do? Nobody's ever going to say, and really nobody may ever have to enforce it because the ball is in love's court. So because I don't know what was said in that meeting, I really have a hard time of handicapping what's going to happen. Well, the Joe Smith, Glenn Taylor disaster in Minnesota, I think, is the best example for why you can't promise anything in anything because they lost three first-round picks because they promised wink, wink. And I think another good example, which happened in Cleveland, Carlos Boozer. That's right. Where, I was in the hey, Carlos, that. we're going to – we're not going to make we're going to pick up your or we're going to let you go you we're going to let your option go so we have the cap space to do this but then we're going to sign you back for this and Boozer's like all right great and then he went and signed with Utah That's So right. I don't know I I think people are always going to 
end up, no matter what they said or they promised or wink, wink, all that stuff, people are always going to do what's best for them. I and agree. If and love I also feels don't like think... love feels like I, I'm the third option on this team, and I'm a distant third option, and I'm I'm not in the spots that I like. I'm not near the basket. They don't post me up. I'm not really that happy. Um, I could go to the Lakers or Boston or the Knicks or wherever and be the main guy. I'm doing that. Or he could hit three enormous baskets in this playoff run, really enjoy it, and say, this is what I want to do. Very possible. It's. I mean, everything's in play for this. But I agree with that. I think that's the best way to say it. Everything's in play. I think they do need to figure out um, both short-term and long-term more ways to get him involved. I, I think – when he posts up, I love when he posts up. I like when he's around the basket. I think it's a way – Goldsberry did a nice piece for us on Monday about this. It's a waste of his talents to play him like Channing Fry. He's better. He's, he's not Channing Fry. He's better than that. I, um, I, I so much enjoyed you uh, working for months on this podcast to get Jeff Green traded. You, it, was, it was wonderful to watch the development. Thank and you. And so now I look forward for the next several months for you to create a scenario to get Kevin Love to Boston. Yeah, I, I – I mean, it would be nice, but I do feel like if he leaves, it's for the Lakers. I think that's that's the place for him to go that would have the least kind of backlash for it. You know, he could say he's basically coming home. I mean, he's from uh, Oregon, but um, or Washington, one of those two. But you know, he's he played from, at yeah, UCLA he's from, here. He's from the same community as Clay Thompson. I'm pretty sure. Right, his his girlfriend. I think he's still dating her. Is based here, and you know it's Lakers. She's an a- yes, she's an actress who Cody Horn, right? Whose father is a major executive at our parent company at Disney. Yeah, he's one of the most successful movie executives of all time. That's right, uh, Alan Horn. So, um, you know that would make sense. And then you think, all right, he goes there this year. He's obviously close to Westbrook, who he's been buddies with forever. Westbrook down the road, somebody in 2016, like. That would make sense. The Celtics, that would seem like more of an FU to Cleveland, right? I'm going yeah. to another Eastern Conference team. I just think he's going to experience – I think they're going to make the finals. Barring an injury, I just think they've got the best team in the East. I know that's disrespectful to Atlanta. I apologize, Atlanta. I think they've got the best team in the East. And if they make it there, he's going to experience – he's going to go from like 0 to 100 on this scale, and he's going to experience this. And if he likes it, if he enjoys these games, like I said, who's to say that in the second-round game against the Bulls in Game 3, LeBron won't come off a pick three times in the fourth quarter, zing it to him, and he hits three threes, wins the game for him, and he has an experience that he hasn't had since he was at UCLA, and he goes, this is what I want. I want to do this every year. And then the Lakers are like, well, we've got a three-year plan. Or the Knicks are like, well, we'll use our draft pick, Carmelo, and we'll get somebody. You know, I just... That's the thing that the Cavs have. You know, first off, they can offer him five years if that's what he wants. Yeah. And the other thing is that they can say, listen, look at Kyrie and LeBron. They have, what, maybe Russell Westbrook in, th- in two years in L.A.? Maybe this draft pick that the, that the Knicks get will be a star player? I mean, I just think that the Cavs' selling point, in addition to the money, is going to be we have it now. And he lived in the barren wasteland for six years. So, this, so I think, I really think with free agency just in general, you can't, call you can't make a prediction in march or april or may yep. you got to make you got to you got to decide where it is at the end of the day and that's what happened with lebron and the and the heat last year and that's what may happen with kevin and the cavs this year the celtics can offer um 
the promise of a lot of tradable assets uh, to help him and President Brad Stevens. Those are our two <laughs> assets right now and a great well, organization. You, know, you got you to think about something. If, yeah. the Cavs, if he says he wants to leave the Cavs, a sign and trade all of a sudden becomes extremely important for them. Uh, okay. Um, you know, uh, we're, and we're, we're ready to talk. Uh, <laughs> and I like so, Kevin Love. I, 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 what I haven't liked is seeing somebody who I really enjoyed watching play basketball um, being relatively wasted. It, it was like watching one of my favorite actors in the wrong movie or something where you're like, Oh, why is he in this movie? You know what I mean? I think there's easy ways to get him more involved. That would make everybody happy. I will I say can... one thing though. And then we have to go. Um, that, that last Atlanta Cleveland game was really interesting to me. And I think people should be very careful of just throwing Cleveland in the finals because the stuff Atlanta did in that game, um, which played to what we talked about earlier about how one-on-one and ice oriented Cleveland is, Atlanta really took advantage of that, and they were a much better coached, much better prepared team in that game. Um, team basketball can still beat what I'm seeing from this Cleveland team, no matter how talented they are. So that's – I wouldn't rule out Atlanta, I guess, as much. Let point. me say two things real quickly before you go. Yeah. One, when Kevin Love signs his new contract, whether it's in Cleveland or somewhere else, he's going to talk – and this is going to be like mid to late July. There's going to be a press conference. He's going to talk about how he's going to be so much better next year because his back's going to be healthy. That's prediction one. Great. Two, I took the exact opposite approach from the Atlanta game. They had three days to prepare. The Cavs were playing their sixth game in nine days. Coach Buds threw a game plan at them they weren't ready for. They got down by 17, totally outcoached them. LeBron carried the Cavs back and had them with the lead early in the fourth quarter. And I think even though they lost the game, I think LeBron thought, you know, I, I still beat this system. We weren't even prepared mm. for it. I can still beat it. And, I, I, and they didn't play well in the fourth quarter, but I think LeBron walked away from that game saying, they'll be tough, but I can handle it. That, that would be a situation where it would be 1-0 in a series. Yeah. You know, Atlanta would have won the first game, and I think LeBron would be like, we'll get him in six or seven. I like it. I like that we disagree. I will say <laughs> this about Cleveland. They are the one team – well, I think Golden State actually is – so there, there's two teams like this in the league, although Golden State's never behind in any game. But – Man, Cleveland can be down 19 with 12 minutes to go and all of a sudden rip off 13 straight in like 10 seconds. And when you have that – and Oklahoma City used to be like that before their whole franchise fell apart. But when you have the ability to just make up big leads in short periods of time in the playoffs, it's one of the best uh, strengths you can have. Because you can play a bad game and still somehow linger. You know what I mean? LeBron has been to the finals five of the last seven years, and I think three of those years as the two seed. Uh, there you go. All right, Brian Winhurst, great job this year covering the Cavs. Uh, I think it's only going to get more and more interesting. So we will we will hear you on uh, on Bill Don't Lie and on the BS Report. And also, we got to get you out to L.A. for a Grantland basketball hour at some point. Great. Thanks, Bill. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Wanted to remind you we have a new podcast that I'm hosting called Bill Don't Lie, NBA only, every Monday. It is not a BS report. You have to subscribe to this on iTunes or get it on ESPN.com's Pod Center. It's called Bill Don't Lie, NBA guests every week, NBA talk every Monday. Check it out, iTunes, please.